0: Conversations on healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, can't believe it, but we're looking at another Supreme Court case, which is challenging part of the Affordable Care Act.
1: This time, the high court decided to accept a group of challenges to the law's mandate that requires coverage for contraception for all national employers, even those with religious affiliations. Some of the plaintiffs include university and hospital organizations who object to the contraception mandate.
0: The court has ruled that family-owned companies operating on religious principles could object to contraception provisions based on their religious grounds. The administration gave those groups a compromise. Insurance companies cover. Those employees will handle the contraception benefits so entities won't be directly responsible for such coverage. The new case, though, before the Supreme Court will strike more closely to the rights of religious groups to object to the federal mandates under the Affordable Care Act.
1: Well, the high court is not expected to rule on the case until late spring, and it's not going to have any major bearing on the overall health care law. But it does have the potential to disrupt coverage for those working for religious institutions across the country. So a very interesting case to take note of, as has each of its predecessors with the (laughs)
0: Supreme Court. And another event to watch, Margaret, is the upcoming UN Climate Change Summit in Paris. Climate change is still a heavily debated issue in this country, as well as around the world. But the evidence is clear, climate change is already having an impact on global health.
1: And that's something that our guest today is very familiar with, Mark. Gary Cohen is a 2015 MacArthur Fellow and founder of Healthcare Without Harm, an organization that seeks to reduce harm to the environment by reducing pollutants generated by the healthcare industry. He's
0: also one of President Obama's Champion of Change award winners for his work in this field. Looking forward to that conversation.
1: We've also got a report from Laurie Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org, who is always on the hunt for misstatements spoken about health policy in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by going to chcradio.com.
0: And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you.
1: We'll get to our interview with Gary Cohen, founder of Healthcare Without Harm, in just a moment. But
0: first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news.
2: Mariano here with these healthcare headlines. A startling uptick in the premature deaths of middle aged white Americans, particularly men, points to the long term effects of stress on overall health. The cause may be even more surprising. The report released by recent Nobel Prize winner for economics Angus Deaton revealed the uptick in death rates is due to a rise in alcoholic liver disease, suicide and drug overdoses. The study looked closely at the demographics of this group finding a direct correlation between lower education status and a higher incidence of premature death. Particularly alarming, according to Dr. Deaton, is the rise in middle-aged suicides, which could be a result of long-term economic challenges following the Great Recession. Death rates rose 22 percent among middle-aged white males with a high school education or less. 400,000 uninsured Kentuckians have gained coverage under the Affordable Care Act. Outgoing Governor Stephen Bashir, the only Southern governor to expand Medicaid coverage for its citizens living near the poverty line and creating an online state insurance marketplace that's functioned very well. But that progress could be coming to an end. Kentucky's incoming governor, Tea Party candidate Matt Bevin, plans to derail the state exchange, which means residents will have to then rely on the federal exchange. He also plans to roll back Medicaid eligibility for many of those 400,000 newly covered. Open enrollment is underway across the nation and many folks relying on coverage through the federal marketplace are finding it harder to secure plans that support out-of-network coverage. The federal law does not require such coverage and many are paying higher premiums that allow them more flexibility. Last year, insurers shrunk the number of providers within those networks of many plans, leaving consumers with fewer options. Childhood obesity has reached epidemic proportions though signs show a certain leveling off but still 30% of American teens qualify as obese study shows gastric bypass surgery in morbidly obese teens does have lasting effects not only did the average weight loss come in at about 27 percent, it was sustained over time. And other long-term health benefits presented as well. Lower blood pressure, blood sugar, joint disease, and incidence of adolescent type 2 diabetes. The study reflects the longest and largest analysis of results from teen bariatric surgery and published online in the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Mariano O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're
0: speaking today with Gary Cohen, 2015 MacArthur Fellow and president and founder of Healthcare Without Harm, an international coalition of health professionals, hospitals, environmental groups and patient advocates dedicated to eliminating harmful waste and pollutants from healthcare industry. Prior to that, Mr. Cohen served as executive director of the National Toxic Campaign Fund and the Military Toxic Project. He's also earned numerous awards and distinctions, including being named one of President Obama's Champions of Change, the Skoll Award for Social Entrepreneurship, and he's also an Ashoka Fellow. He earned his BA from Clark University. Mr. Cohen, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Thank you, For having me. Yeah.
0: You know, it's 20 years since you founded Healthcare Without Harm. And at that time, you'd been researching the overall effects of uh, chemical pollutants on the worldwide environment. And you uncovered a startling fact that nation's hospitals were the largest contributors to the spread of industrial pollutants, specifically the toxic chemical dioxin, through the incineration of millions of tons of medical waste. That obviously spurred you into action. And I'm wondering if you could tell our listeners about the size and the scope of the problem of medical waste disposal and what the Healthcare without harm uh, was able to do about
3: it. Well, we realized in the mid-1990s that um, medical waste was an enormous problem and it was validated by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency uh, that came out with a report in 1995 that said medical waste incinerators were the largest source of dioxin emissions in the United States. And dioxin is linked to uh, uh, cancer, uh, birth defects, learning disabilities, endometriosis, uh, just a whole host of with health problems and uh, the idea that hospitals were a large source of such poisonous emissions was so absurd uh, and against their mission to do no harm. So uh, we uh, created this organization initially focused on medical waste and then other issues later to heal the pollution from the healthcare sector and we were able to show that if you reduce the amount of waste that you produced in the first place, and like the rest of us, recycle stuff that could be recycled, reduce the amount of infectious waste, which is the really important waste. If you did that, you could save a lot of money. Um, You could also use alternative technologies to treat the waste called autoclaves, which are basically steam sterilization units so you can render the waste inert, Uh, and then you could bury the much smaller amount of waste that you have as opposed to burning it all and so from well nineteen ninety six to two thousand six there were forty five hundred incinerators and then they were 70 incinerators uh, 10 years later.
1: Pretty impressive. Well, Gary, you also discovered that the healthcare industry was responsible for the spread of another toxic and deadly pollutant, mercury, which was ubiquitous in healthcare institutions around the world when you started your work. And you brought attention to the fact that in America alone, mercury poisoning was being exacerbated every week, being millions of broken thermometers Uh, the mercury from just one broken thermometer, uh, having the ability to compromise an entire water supply. I think your work in this area has been really dramatic. You formed alliances to confront the problems and eventually garnered participation in the cause from the entire healthcare community, the supplier community, major global partners. Can you tell us about these partnerships and the dramatic results you were able to achieve in reducing the threat of mercury poisoning?
3: Sure. Uh, In the mid-1990s, healthcare was responsible for about 10% of all mercury emissions, air and water. So it wasn't the largest percentage, but it was one that we felt that we could act on. Mm -hmm. And so um, we convinced one hospital in Boston, Beth Israel Deaconess, to um, basically offer their employees and their patients to bring their mercury thermometers in one day, and then they gave them digital ones in replacement. And they were the first hospital to commit to uh, phase out mercury thermometers. Why? Because there were were alternatives on the marketplace that also measured people's temperature just as well. We then convinced the other hospitals in Boston to follow the lead of Beth Israel and then the city of Boston basically restricted uh, the sale of mercury thermometers. Hmm. We set up a pledge with the American Hospital Association and the EPA and the American Nurses Association and eventually got five thousand hospitals to commit to go mercury-free and got a number of other cities to start restricting mercury thermometer sales and that led to the pharmacy chains realizing that their market was being restricted and they should stop selling mercury thermometers and so fourteen large pharmacy chains also agreed to stop selling mercury thermometers you know, it sounds easy, but it took about 10 years to mm-hmm. do all of what I just mm-hmm. described. And then we went, uh, we have an office in Europe, and because there's still a functional democracy in Europe, we were able to win legislation, basically phasing out mercury thermometers and then blood pressure devices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we started again with one hospital in mm-hmm. Manila, in the Southeast Asia and in Philippines, one hospital in Buenos Aires, and again sort of built it up from one hospital to one city to one country and then partnered with the World Health Organization uh to create momentum globally uh for the phase out of mercury uh, in healthcare and then along the way came a treaty that was going to commercially eliminate mercury and um, we were able to win in the treaty the phase out of all mercury measuring devices by the year 2020 so it was a great example of how you can start small with a single hospital and move over time toward global policy global treaty and the the role of the healthcare sector not only in sort of detoxing its own supply chain but showing the rest of the economy mm-hmm. how to do that mm-hmm. was very powerful in the treaty and what's remained to be done is the largest source of mercury of course is is coal fired power plants mm-hmm. and so uh, the next transformation here is to phase out all uh, coal uh, facilities around the world over the next 5 years
0: Well, that is an enormous challenge and uh, one that's very important for the global population's health. And you sort of make it sound simple, but I'm sure it wasn't. It wasn't simple. It wasn't simple. (laughs) If it was simple, anybody could do it. Yeah, I think our our listeners would like to know uh, the challenges that you ran into as you sort of peeled back this onion and you identified additional toxins within the healthcare system, plastics and healthcare devices and the like. Uh, tell our listeners who the, some of the worst offenders were and how your campaign to eliminate those harmful products also were received.
3: Well, once we had made progress on the incineration and mercury issue, we, we started to learn about some of the plastics that were used in patient care. And uh, PVC plastics uh, are used uh, in a lot in IV bags and tubing and other, other devices. And uh, PVC is a, is a... Problematic um, plastic, probably worst in class. I mean, it's uses chlorine to be produced, so you create dioxin in the production um, of of PVC, and then when you burn it, that was the whole issue in the incineration issue, is that it was all these chlorinated plastics, all this PVC that was being burned. In the middle, when you use it in order to make it flexible and pliable, you need to add things to it. You need to add chemicals, and what we found is that they were the chemical industry was adding a chemical that was actually a reproductive toxin into the mm-hmm. into the PVC. So as you were getting your IV drip uh in in the hospital, you were also being infused with a reproductive mm-hmm. toxin. So how crazy is that? Right. Um, especially for the most vulnerable uh patients, pregnant women, children in the neonatal intensive care unit, the last thing they need is additional toxic chemicals uh being infused into them. And so we uh, we raised these issues and said look we need to move toward safer plastics in the healthcare sector. We need to phase this out. And um, initially we started with the neonatal intensive care unit and put a lot of pressure on the medical device manufacturers a to acknowledge that this was a problem and b to then pressure them to innovate towards safer products. And the way that we found that was the most powerful way is by um, leveraging the demand of large hospital systems so if they started demanding uh... safer medical products the supply chain would have to respond and so kaiser permanente which is the largest non-profit health system in the country made a, a system-wide commitment to phase out PVC, and that started to create all sorts of momentum. And then um, Dignity Healthcare mm-hmm. followed suit, which is mm-hmm. another huge Catholic system, and, and it's created momentum. And so it's, it started to move the market toward safer plastics. So healthcare has enormous purchasing power. Mm-hmm. It's 18% of the entire economy. And if we can direct that purchasing power toward health and justice, and sustainability. We can change the economy.
1: Well, Gary, uh, you're changing the economy and and changing the world. And I understand that um, area that is now getting some long overdue attention, and that's the food that hospitals purchase to feed their staff and their patients. You've been fostering the growth of relationships between healthcare organizations and local sustainable farmers. And that's not only supporting the local grower economy, it's certainly bringing healthier locally sourced food into the system. And again, you cited Kaiser Permanente as a great example of this policy in action. Tell us about this. How how are you advancing this locally grown movement through healthcare without harm?
3: Well, what we discovered as we started to, you know, scratch beyond the surface of healthcare is that everywhere we looked, we found some other disconnect between the environment and people's health. And uh, it was quite egregious when it comes to the issue of food. And so you'd have hospitals serving donuts and sugar-sweetened beverage and junk food. And so it's giving a completely wrong message to patients and employees as if there's no connection between healthy food and healthy people. And so we wanted to get healthcare to model healthy food environments. And so the early efforts were to eliminate sugar-sweetened beverages from their facilities, to serve healthier food, to have fast food-free zones and hospitals, um, but then we said, okay, can you create farmers markets in your lobbies, in, sure. your, in your parking lots as places of access for the local community? Can you leverage your purchasing power to support more sustainable and local farmers? So it's changing healthcare from being just concerned with the operations of their four walls to acting as an anchor for not only community wealth and community health together. Hmm. And so uh, what we've done over time is working with systems like Kaiser, Permanente, but many, many, many others around the country is aggregating their purchasing power to create the demand for, say, for food, healthier foods, more sustainable food, and in some cases even linking with school systems Mm -hmm. now to move the market because we think that if we're going to solve the epidemic of obesity and diabetes in the country. We have to create food systems that actually support healthy people Mm -hmm. and healthy communities. It has to be the easy choice.
0: We're speaking today with Gary Cohen, 2015 MacArthur Fellow and President and Founder of Healthcare Without Harm, an international coalition of health professionals, hospital environmental groups, and patient advocates dedicated to eliminating harmful waste and pollutants from the healthcare industry. Uh, Gary, we are also very much committed to the environmental movement. We built a few years ago, 50,000 foot lead gold building for primary care. And uh, part of this movement to make sure in primary care that we address the issues of food deserts, all of those things are important, but design really matters. In everything that we do, you know, we've had the opportunity of having hospital designer Robin Gunther on the show talking about her design approach. Talk to us a little more about her example and others where sustainable hospital design is is really beginning to have an impact.
3: Yeah, it's a critical dimension of of this transformation that's required. uh, That if we can build hospitals that have more natural light, that use safer building materials... That are uh, resilient in particular to uh, climate change impacts, we can change hospitals from being places that actually make us feel sick to places that actually promote healing. you know that 's especially critical now in the age of climate change, where we need our hospitals and our clinics to be the last buildings standing in extreme weather events. They need to function even if the grid is down, so mm-hmm. if they have on site power. Uh, they can stay open to address the injuries and and health issues related to the next hurricane sandy or katrina mm-hmm. if they put the electrical equipment on the roof instead of in the basement when the floodwaters rise uh, they don't have to be evacuated they can still operate so there's a whole new reality that healthcare is facing that requires us to rethink our buildings and our supply chain in a way that makes them much more places of refuge mm-hmm. and operations in the coming storms of climate change. And I think Robin has been, Robin Gunther has mm-hmm. been absolutely mm-hmm. the leader globally yeah. in, in articulating this vision. And just recently, she worked with the Department of Health and Human Services uh, to develop a toolkit for how to design climate resilient mm-hmm. healthcare facilities, which is a very powerful tool that we're now trying to uh, bring around the country to educate the healthcare sector.
1: Well, Gary, while you've been advocating around the world for improving the environment of the healthcare facilities, I know you've noted, as we all have, that healthcare itself needs some healing. And you've particularly made the point that the healthcare system is still trying to treat patients out of the context of their environments and that we've got to take the healthcare system as far upstream as possible to get to. Root causes and to really put our focus on prevention. Share with us your perspective on how the healthcare system can do a better job of going upstream, of preventing disease in the first place.
3: I think we're at the very early stages of this transformation. We still, as a nation, spend 70 cents on the dollar for treating patients and 4 cents on the dollar mm-hmm. in preventing disease. And we spend twice as much as any country on the planet on healthcare, and yet, One in two men will get cancer. One in three women will get cancer. One in six kids have learning disabilities. Tens of millions of people are obese or have diabetes. You know, we're spending all this money, and yet we don't have very positive health impacts. Our people are not healthy. And so the only way that we're really going to stop this epidemic is to address the social and environmental conditions that are making people sick in the first place. We have to detox the economy so we're not being exposed to carcinogenic chemicals in our mattresses, in our food, in our daily products, in our cosmetics. We need to change the food system. Burning of fossil fuels kill more people around the world than AIDS, TB, and malaria combined. And so this is a brand new reality, is that we're the realization that the environment and poverty are the most important factors in, in chronic disease. And so if we can get health care to move out into the community and support healthy housing, support healthy foods, support resilient energy systems that don't rely on fossil fuels, we're going to make dramatic improvements in, in reducing chronic disease.
0: And and that's what's really uh, taking you to think uh, broadly about climate change because we can't disassociate human health from uh, the health of the global environment. And you've been designated a champion of change by the Obama administration for your work in climate change and public health. And you've been partnering with the World Health Organization and other global uh, groups to tackle this challenge. Uh, talk to our listeners about the threat of climate change on health and how do the goals of healthcare 2020 climate challenge address that?
3: yes so i mean i think we're realizing that climate change at the end of the day is a public health emergency if we move away from the imagery of of climate change as polar bears on melting ice caps to the imagery of people in beijing that can't go outside because the air is too poison or asthma for people who are living downstream from coal plants or heat stress because there's going to be so many more extreme heat days around the world we're learning so much about how People will experience climate change uh, in their daily lives, in the health uh, of their families uh, and themselves. And so uh, the healthcare sector is so critical to help bring that new knowledge to the public, and that that the solutions will also improve our health. So if we can uh, stop using fossil fuels, we'll clean up the air, and we'll support healthier communities, and actually we'll support uh, the development of a renewable energy economy by having healthcare leaders become the messengers uh, for policies that will usher in this renewable energy economy, they're the most trusted messengers in our society. They can lead the effort to detox the economy and show by example how they themselves uh, can power their facilities by low-carbon technologies. And then third, they can be powerful advocates for saying, yeah, we need a price on carbon. And that price should include all the public health damage that, that we're experiencing. We need uh, renewable energy standards, uh, and that's going to have health co-benefits. So there's, there's a very powerful role for healthcare professionals to play, physicians, nurses, public health officials around the world to lead this effort. And that's what we're trying to instigate around the world in partnerships to play this fundamental mm-hmm. leadership role.
1: We've been speaking today with Gary Cohen, 2015 MacArthur Fellow and President and Founder of Healthcare Without Harm. You can learn more about their work by going to noharm.org. Gary, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations on Healthcare.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Lori, what have you got for us this week?
4: At the late October Republican presidential debate, Carly Fiorina said that 400,000 small businesses form every year, while 470,000 go out of business. And why, she asked. They cite Obamacare. But business deaths outnumbered business births by roughly the numbers Fiorina cited in 2009, a year before the Affordable Care Act was even signed into law. That year, according to data from the Census Bureau's Business Dynamics Statistics, there were 409,000 firm births and 499,000 firm deaths. The situation was highlighted in a Brookings Institution report from May 2014 that said, quote, business deaths now exceed business births for the first time in the 30-plus year history of our data. The report said that the trend could reverse in the future, and that's exactly what has happened. The gap between business births and deaths was at its largest in 2009. The latest census figures show that in 2010, business births surpassed business death. There were about 36,000 more firms born than had died. Births also outnumbered deaths in 2013, the latest data available. The major provisions of the Affordable Care Act, such as the insurance marketplaces and a requirement to have insurance or pay a fine, didn't take effect until 2014. As for why business deaths outnumbered births from 2009 to 2011, the Brookings report didn't determine that, but did say that the trend, quote, fit into a larger narrative of business consolidation occurring in the U.S. economy.
0: Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Of the 6.6 million births per year in this country, over half are unintended. And among teens, those rates are even higher. Colorado has been conducting an experiment for several years to examine what might happen if sexually active teens and poor women were offered the option of long-term birth control, such as IUDs or implants. The first question to answer, would they take the offer?
5: What was so striking was the word of mouth uh, amongst um, these young women to each other and the network of support that was built to access uh, this program through these clinics uh, and to help the tens of thousands of, of women over the course of the four to five years really did then um, result in these significant decreases in unintended pregnancies and abortions.
0: Dr. Larry Wolk, Medical Director of the Colorado Department of Health and Environment, he says the results were nothing short of astounding.
5: The resultant decrease is 40% plus or minus in both categories, pregnancy and abortion, and preliminary data for 2014, it looks like those reductions may be even more dramatic to more than 50, even approaching 60% reduction in those unintended pregnancies and abortions.
0: And the results showed not only a dramatic decrease in unintended pregnancies, there was a significant economic benefit to the state as well.
5: We've seen a significant decrease in the number of young moms and kids applying for and and needing public assistance, whether that's public insurance, the WIC program. You know, we hope that then longer term, this will translate into better social and economic outcomes for these folks and for us as a state and in our state's population.
0: The incidence of sexually transmitted diseases dropped in this population as well.
5: We've been doing background surveillance of our sexually transmitted diseases here in Colorado. And amongst young women, 15 to 24, we've seen a decrease in sexually transmitted infections. And the rates are now below the national averages.
0: Many other state health departments are already consulting with Colorado on the successful outcome of their experiment. A free, long-term contraception program offered to at-risk teens and women trying to avoid the economic hardship of unplanned pregnancies, leading to a number of positive health and economic outcomes. Now that's a bright idea.
1: This is Conversations
2: on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter.
0: And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and Health.
2: Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University. Streaming live at WESUFM.org and brought to you by the Community Health Center.